Hello and welcome to the Psychedelic Society South Africa podcast. I am your host, Nathan Maingard, and the purpose of this podcast is to give voice to the different actors in the current psychedelic renaissance with a strong focus on what's happening in South Africa. We're here to spread information and serve as a beacon to draw in and connect all those who share an interest in psychedelics, healing, altered states of consciousness, and anything related. Today's guest is Liesl Kruger. Liesl has studied the teachings of North and South American shamanism and that of the Red Path and Sacred Fire. Uh, she's also she, she is a leader of shamanic journeys and sweat lodges. And well, I'll let her introduce herself as we get into this podcast episode. Thank you for being here. And I hope that you enjoy. Let's just start at the kind of kind of with you. So who are you and what is it that you do? Well, my name's Liesl Kruger. Um, I used to be a tax lawyer, believe it or not, until I got to the point where the corporate world, I guess, had less and less meaning for me personally. I kept on feeling a sense of not being satisfied with what I was doing, even though I enjoy it and I still do some tax work part-time. I just had this gnawing feeling that I wanted to do something more meaningful. And then I was very fortunate to discover the medicine of ayahuasca in South Africa. And that was about, I think, 18 years ago. And since then, one thing led to another, so to speak. So I kept on working with the plants, with um, ayahuasca, mushrooms, peyote, San Pedro, bufo, a whole range of things. And I've also spent a lot of time in Brazil and in Mexico receiving training. So back to your question, what I do mostly now is I run shamanic journeys and ceremonies at my retreat space, which is about an hour from Cape Town. Sure, that's amazing. That's like a, a real journey to be on, 18 years of, of exploration and I mean, obviously, we're in a time right now where things are really kind of expanding for plant medicines around the world. And I mean, in certain countries, they're starting to decriminalize or at least look at how they could decriminalize. And I'm curious to know, like as someone who's been involved in this world for so long, what are your thoughts on this current I guess it's because it's also psychedelic psychotherapy. So it's being kind of combined with Western methodologies and yeah i just like to hear how, how do you think about what's happening currently with all of it yeah that's a great topic actually i personally believe that the medicine goes where it is needed somehow if one considers this from a holistic point of view so definitely a medicine like ayahuasca has hit the west now and i think that there is a stigma attached to all these medicines because, you know, because of we call them psychedelics or hallucinogens instead of seeing them for the, the healers that they are and the shifts that they can achieve. So I think it is fantastic that there is more acceptance of these plant medicines and that there are more studies being done, especially regarding psilocybin and even MDMA about how effective those medicines are in treating a various, a huge range of conditions, which are more, I think, peculiar to the Western lifestyle and the Western mindset, you know, things like um, depression, anxiety, 
all those things are being very successfully treated. So I think it's a great thing that it is being legalized more and more. However, we need to also take care in preserving the resources where these plants come from. You know, we just, if we use it to better ourselves and to heal ourselves and to achieve these shifts in ourselves, I believe we also, as Westerners especially, need to give something back to the communities where these medicines come from. Mm. Yeah, I think that's a really interesting point that you're making. And it's, it's such, it seems such a common thing that we do in the West where we get, it's happened with like quinoa, for example, where everyone's like, oh, there's this really healthy thing, quinoa. And then the West starts eating it so much that the people who've grown it forever can't afford to buy it themselves. And it's like, it's that kind of thing when, when we have like short grain brown rice or we have, we have, and in this case to me, I mean, my personal calling or the, the medicine that calls me the most loudly is, is generally psilocybin. And I think that for a number of reasons, it's one of the most sensible ones. I mean, there are others, but it's kind of the one you, you don't have to prepare it in any way. It's, it just grows and you can pick it and eat it. And then it's also so easy to grow and it's like, there's no shortage. And so I think that's one of the ones that, that if people just, just because even if we give back, it's still the amount that's being taken out of out of these indigenous cultures right now. And also I've heard that like peyote takes something like 20 years to, to become to, before you can harvest it. And it's things like that, where it's like, do you really need to have this specific one or could we like be a little more flexible? Um, anyway, that's just one of the things yes. I think about a lot. <laughs> no, totally. It's true what you say. So I'm actually very thinking about this a lot, like how we can, you know, we say give back. For me, it's also, even if we take these medicines, especially I work a lot with ayahuasca, is to keep these peoples in our prayers and to keep remembering that what we are actually taking is a sacred plant. It's not like to have a trip or, you know, to have some beautiful visuals and that type of thing is to to just focus our thoughts and our prayers on these communities and to give it back. But also I'm exploring a little bit now and thinking how we can cultivate more of those type of plants in South Africa so that we don't have to get it from Brazil or from Mexico if you talk about peyote. And I believe it is possible. We just need to focus our minds a little bit as to how to achieve this. Yeah, I mean, it would be lovely if we could reach a point where in a way you know, having met the, some of the people from the Honeycoin when they come to South Africa and, you know, that they travel around the world months out of every year to share this medicine with the world. And in a way, the only reason they need to do that is because the rest of the world is kind of destroying their home. And I don't know if that makes sense, but there's this sense yes. that they're having, and they do it with such beauty and joy and commitment and like I just but at the same time I'm like these people are away from their families for like half the year just so they can come and help us poor westerners out so we stop destroying the world um and there's something in that of like the invitation is like could we I look forward to I mean maybe it it won't be in my lifetime I don't think but reaching a point where people like them don't need to travel to share the medicine where the whole world is awake to their own medicine and we're all working together to build a beautiful world. Mm. Um, And actually that, that kind of brings me to another question just around working with these medicines. Do you, 
what is kind of the right way and what maybe is a wrong way? Like what are some things that people can be, people who are listening can be aware of if they are maybe looking to work with some of these medicines and there's a, a guide or just some of the ways that they could like red flags almost and then some green flags. Like what are the, the ways to, yeah, anyway, just for those who are kind of looking for that guidance. Yes. Yeah, so for me, the most important thing is to be respectful and to honor the sacredness of these medicines all the plants because they bring such wisdom and they bring such healing and they bring such insights to our lives especially i mean we spoke about psilocybin but especially plants like ayahuasca and peyote which is not that readily available um, with the areas where it's growing those areas are constantly under threat so we really need to treat this as something very sacred um so I try to, I always bring that into my ceremonies, that sense of honoring. We are not there to have a trip, like I said, and to, you know, to have a nice chat and see good patterns. It's not about that. Um, the medicine also showed me once really clearly that a lot of our work is not so much about ourselves. Of course, we need to heal ourselves too, but it is about having this reverence and this honor and this respect for 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 everything that is but also for these plants and for everything that is sacred and then another important thing is the source the source of your medicine you know you see that a lot where you know people order these things off the internet with no knowledge of where it came from so when we prepare the medicine whether you cook an ayahuasca brew or whether you cook peyote or whether you cook san pedro there's a lot of energy that goes into the preparation and that energy is eventually present in what you consume. So the source of the plant is really important. When they cook ayahuasca in Brazil, it's a constant prayer and singing over this tea while it is being brewed. The same with peyote. So the source is important. And then lastly, the, the guide, you know, it's a very new age type of thing that, we often see that someone takes or attends a ceremony once or twice and suddenly they call themselves a shaman and they want to serve the medicine. And I think that's a huge red flag because it's not just about, you know, giving people these medicines to drink and being able to sing a few songs or play a recording. It's, it's really so much more because one creates a very delicate and vulnerable space in which to work, you need to, you need to have the knowledge and the experience and definitely the training to be able to, to hold a safe space and to guide people through their journeys, even though it is the medicine that we have to trust and the medicine that, that eventually does the work, it needs to be a trustworthy person. And another thing that I've recently, that's become so important and present for me is to have to follow like a lineage, to have that backing. Like, for example, with my training that I've done, I know that it doesn't matter what happens, that my teachers have my back. Um, and you can feel that support, you know, even in a ceremony. So, yeah, that's basically my thoughts on how to keep it safe and how to mm. keep it contained. Mm. Lovely. Thank you so much. I, I'm curious to know around, around lineage, because this is something I think about a lot, in, it's mm -hmm. it's one of the ways that language is being used in the world today that has it that when words are used as a weapon and what I'm seeing is that there's this sense that if you're not indigenous then you should just be quiet 
But then I'm like, mm. well, how far back should we go for that? Because we're all indigenous in our roots. Like at some point, our ancestors along the way lost the way. And so, and then they started taking that away from others. So there's this whole kind of unraveling. But I guess I'm curious as a, you know, a, a French, Russian, Latvian, English, who knows what heritage that I have, how does one, like someone like me, connect with the lineage? without it becoming kind of appropriation of, of some of, because there is sensitivity around that. Like mm -hmm. as, as a European person whose ancestors probably were the people who were invading other parts of the world, like I, I'm doing my best to connect with a lineage that has meaning. And then how can I do that in a way that is sincere and that isn't just doing more of mm -hmm. the taking? Yes. So I love what my teacher and the chief of the sacred fire Aurelio in Mexico says is that, we are all one tribe. And that's what you just said, which we started. I mean, we are all one tribe. We are humanity. With the medicine and with these ceremonies, I think we are remembering. We are remembering who we are and what it is like to live, you know, to have a fire and to be with each other. And that's something that we've forgotten. So when it comes to lineage, it doesn't necessarily mean, look, we can never be indigenous. We are not indigenous people but maybe we have been indigenous before because I often also ponder like, why is it that, that these type of like the ceremonies and especially I work a lot with the red path and the vision quest, you know, why is it that it resonates so much with some of us? And that can only be, this is what I believe that we've been exposed to this before in another time, in another life, in another tribe. And knowing that we are also our own ancestors, all of us, you know, we, we create what we're going to receive in the future when we come around again. So, yes, we're all one tribe. And having said that, it goes back to respect. Some Indigenous people are very, um, how can I, skeptical and not in favour of Westerners using their medicines which is another, and I do understand that because they have been so exploited by Westerners. So there is a resistance in people. You know, if I had to don like feathers on my head and dress like an indigenous Huni Queen person, I can never be that. So I think that's where the resistance comes from. People, Westerners from their egos trying to be something that they're not, and then it becomes disrespectful to the true indigenous people. However, we can learn from these people and we can respect, respect their ways and we can ask permission for everything we do in a ceremonial context to do what we can offer, but still to honor the lineage of those people. And at the same time, we can form alliances with, um, with indigenous communities or our teachers and, and somehow respect their lineage and know that we are, we are part of this tribe, even though we're not. We were not born indigenous in this lifetime. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Thank you. I really appreciate yeah. that. There's a, this beautiful um, Charles Eisenstein. I can't remember exactly how he says it. He says it so beautifully and poetically, but how what we're coming to now in the world is this, um, the realization that the, the illusion of separation has been what's been causing us pain. So it really is the, what we're talking about is people who have forgotten that we are all connected, mm -hmm. that it's all one, and those who are in the process of remembering or those who rem already remember and who are already. So it's like that's yes. really the only differences 
that are kind of important in, in, in a sort of greater sense. Obviously, there's specifics and there is sensitivity and, and respect. Um, and I'm curious because this is something, so I work with Hape regularly at this point, and it's been, so that's like a thing that I'm getting from the Amazon and I am very careful of my source, et cetera. Um, but it's been an amazingly humbling experience because every time I sit with it, I'm giving thanks for the source, for the for the root, for the wisdom keepers, for the people who are saying the prayers over these medicines. And 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 it does speak to me. And that's a, a part of that medicine is obviously tobacco. And I'm curious to know, like, because tobacco has such a bad name in the West generally, but then what is the medicine of tobacco, the spirit of tobacco teaching us and, and why do we use it and what does it kind of mm -hmm. bring to us? So tobacco, I mean, I love my tobacco too, but like with everything else, like you just said with the hape, it needs to, there's a, there's a time for it. Um, tobacco is seen as the first medicine for all the indigenous people. And in the Red Path sacred fire line that, that I'm a part of, it is like a currency, you know. So, for example, if you were to do a vision quest or a sun dance or a star dance, you present the chief with tobacco in order to receive the, you know, it's just an exchange in return for this person. Or if I go to someone's um, place to do a ceremony, they are obliged to give me tobacco because it's the exchange. Um, and praying with tobacco, we have a lot of ceremonies when integral part of the ceremony is praying with, with tobacco. And I do believe that the tobacco for, I mean, that's what tobacco was used for, is for prayer is that, you know, that's how our words and our prayers are really received by a great spirit. And like with everything else that's a powerful medicine, you know, even alcohol is a powerful medicine, um, the West has somehow taken this and turned it into something else and that led to abuse and, and addiction. So... You know, we created cigarettes, which is how not, you know, that's almost like a poison if you look at what like what pure tobacco is. So I think tobacco, well, for me personally and in the in the Red Path ceremonies, tobacco plays a huge role in these ceremonies. And this is where the people from the Amazon basin have their hape because that is also working with tobacco. And then, you know, people from Peru and those areas have the mapacho. So if you look at all the indigenous cultures tobacco is a huge component of their spiritual path for us that use tobacco like i love having my one tobacco um, in the evenings and for people that use hapa i think it's very important to remember the significance of tobacco and that we always like you said you make a moment of this to honor this medicine of tobacco yeah, it's a it's an interesting what you say, and I I mean I really feel it, and I really appreciate hearing about a little more about this from you because it's something that actually someone suggested it to me, and I resisted for a long time. I was like, I don't know this hape stuff. It's just like, why would I? And then when I finally started w working with it, actually really when with the honey coin and realizing the power. I mean, and especially in the in the ceremony. I mean, I've mm -hmm. never that was an experience that I, I just like completely. I was already having this completely expanded experience. And then the hape, it was like, it was like two, two really good friends meeting and just making this whole new experience. And, yes. and then since then it's felt so, 
precious to me and it is, and I'm sit with it off every day, a lot of the time, but it is such a, I can see how easily it could slip into just it being just casual. And so for me, it's, yes. it's always like, am I sitting at my altar? Am I saying my prayers? Like, am I here for the, for the reasons that are aligned? Is this, is this the prayer or am I just wanting to like alter my state? Um, so exactly. yeah, I really appreciate, appreciate hearing that. Um, yeah. yeah. And so you've mentioned this quite a few times about the red path and kind of vision quests and things like that. So I'd love to hear a little more, like what is the red path and how does that tie into everything you're doing? Yeah. So the red path is really a, I mean, it's a way of living. The red path is when we're alive on earth and it's really a, a path of honoring, of being together. A lot of the, um, if I say red path loosely, it also has to do a lot with the Native American traditions like the Lakota, etc. Um, I'm trained by someone called Aurelio Diaz de Pancali, who's in Mexico, and he's the chief of the sacred fire of Ixtatlan. And that is a component of the of the bigger red path. It's a specific lineage. And the, this lineage consists of what he did. Is he is from indigenous Mexican tradition, and he has sort of remembered and drawn all the old traditions into, um, into the sacred fire tradition with all the ceremonies, etc. And what is part of this tradition is, is the vision quest, the sun dance, the star dance, uh, sweat lodges, and the most important or the most significant or usually where people's paths begin is, is with the vision quest. So the vision quest comes from the Lakota tradition where when the boys came of age, they when they became men, they would sit for four days and four nights in a designated circle without food or water and they would cry for a vision, so to speak. And that's often where they got their names from, you know, like white raven flies, you know, whatever, because of the visions that appear to them in that time. Because obviously without food or water, you do go into a beautiful altered state. So in the tradition what, that we follow, one commits to do four quests in your lifetime. The first, first is four days, then seven days, then nine days, and then 13 days. So the first four days are always without food or water. And each number of days, like four, seven, nine, 13, has a resemblance to a direction and a color and um, a bigger prayer. So for example, the four days, the color is east, uh, the direction is east, the color is red, and the prayer, the prayer is for humility. And so each year it is, um, it's a different prayer. So this is actually um, happening throughout many areas of the world. Obviously, South America, Mexico, Spain, Ibiza, and then also we are privileged enough to have it in South Africa. So the vision quest usually happens around April. And once you've completed the, your 13 days, you can ask for a blessing from the chief or the leader to, to um, get the authority to conduct sweat lodges. And in this way, we also honor the tradition so that you don't, for example, pour a sweat lodge before you've been given the blessing and deemed ready to do that. And also part of this tradition is the sun dance. Um, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, A Man Called Horse, where it's from the it's a very old movie. You're probably, you're probably too young for that. But they, um, 
in the sun dance, you dance, you dance for four days without food or water. And you then you do a sacrifice. So you're often like in that movie where the men hang from they like hang from the trees until their skin breaks, because the biggest sacrifice is deemed to give your blood to the earth. So the sun dance is also referred to as the peace dance. So it's a beautiful, beautiful thing to partake in dancing. You know, they've got a really big drum and sing all these Lakota songs, and you really dance for, for peace. And um, then there's a star dance that is a dance for the ancestors. So that happens at night. So you dance for four nights. And during the dance, you have um, many, many different medicines like ayahuasca, peyote, Santa Maria, um, beautiful, beautiful experience. Also with um, a really big drum and certain songs. So maybe one day we can have those dances in South Africa as well. Wow. This, I mean, this is incredible. You know, one of the things that comes up for me that I noticed is that it seems like all the really powerful medicines are really uncomfortable, like physically. <laughs> I don't know if that, yes, like that they, <laughs> it's like even hape or ayahuasca or, yes. or sananga or, or like sitting for four days and four nights without food or water. It's like none of that is, it really sounds particularly pleasant. <laughs> <laughs> So it's an interesting thing. I, I believe um, that uh, if if we make physical sacrifices like that, in a way our spirits get stronger, right? So I always say to people, um, which is which is what I think is that if you, it's only through physical discomfort that you can make shifts. Because if, you know, of course it would be nicer to watch Netflix than, you know, attend a ceremony, for example, some, you know. But that would be the easy path and the comfortable path. But then we just never, we can never create these shifts in our lives. And if we have the courage to actually go and explore what these medicines have to teach us and have to show us. Because in the end, like with Vision Quest, for example, is such a... It's an opportunity to truly get to know yourself because you sit in that in nature, in that space with nothing, you know, and it's inconceivable to many of us today to to not have a cell phone or not have a book or not have a computer or to just really be alone with your own thoughts and your own emotions creates opportunity for for huge transformation. Yeah, it's it's almost like the antithesis or the opposite of how that our modern culture operates. It's like, it's just all the noise all the time and comfortable couches and Netflix and just like every, just, no, we just, just have the softest life possible. And yet we have the highest rates of depression and suicide and chronic pain and all these things that humanity's ever seen. So it's definitely, there's a, for me, I'm, I, I see a connection there. Yes. And it's the same with, I mean, whether it's a vision quest is, or, or going attending a ceremony, like you say, it's not comfortable to work with these medicines. But once you have, you know that you are not the same person as you were before you attended that ceremony. Yeah, and I'd actually love to ask you about, because obviously there's a big conversation around trauma right now. And so I'd love to, your thoughts on like how, this, how these medicines help with healing trauma and then facilitate us in, in reconnecting to ourselves and I guess, and to the, the whole picture that we're in, the whole existence that we're, mm. we're a part of. 
Yeah, so it's interesting. I mean, when we think of trauma, we often think of some cataclysmic event, you know, as as trauma, or certainly that was sort of my early thoughts around trauma, you know, your World War II or, you know, that type of scenario. But actually, one thing that I've realized is that there are many little traumas in our lives, you know, like stress, um, the overwhelm of, of social media, for example, for children, the, com- the competitiveness of our lives, fears around financial security, etc. I think all of these are little traumas. And I think the biggest result of that, or something I see a lot, is people have a, a real lack of self-love and, and self-belief. And that's how they live their lives. And that then leads to depression, you know. Even if you've had no huge childhood or big traumas, it's like these ongoing little things. And with the, with the medicines, it's just incredible to see how, how wise these teachers are because not only is it an opportunity to almost process that those events or having a better understanding where our actions come from, that you can move through it because what we what the easy path is to follow is to somehow brush these events under the carpet. You know, it's painful to to talk about it and it's painful to think about it. But then when you work with the plants, there is no escape. You have to, they take you there, often the most uncomfortable place. And that's the place, you know, where the healing happens and, and where the shifts happens. And all the medicines all the medicines actually have this ability to do that in their own in their own particular way and it's interesting to see how often you know we we, we often come to a ceremony thinking like i want this or i want this answer or i want this and then you just get what you need in that moment so medicines have also been used more and there's lots of studies especially around psilocybin in treating like big traumas like um, PTSD, war veterans, um, childhood trauma, abuse, and how effective these plants are in in, in just helping us heal that and moving forward. Mm. Mm. Yeah, I, it's interesting because in a way, I think even when we lived closer to nature, when we when we when we remembered that we are nature, because we're still close to nature. It's just people, we aren't noticing it a lot of the time. Um, I, I, I wonder how, you know, there's this idea of having rites of passage. And I'm sure that those rites of passage would have helped people to process the changing times of a human life. The loss, oh, now I know that death exists. And like, or now I've killed my first animal. Or like all these different things that come up that could potentially be big traumas if they aren't processed. And then, so what would you say... I mean, because what you're do- talking about, a lot of this stuff is rites of passage. And what is the importance of rites of passage in the world today? Well, first of all, I think that in our society, we don't have that anymore. We don't, we don't recognize this coming of age because together with that for me is also a recognition and a respect of the natural cycles, you know, the cycles of life, the cycles of nature. And like you say, not to be afraid of the, you know, the cycle of life and death, which is, you know, the overriding cycle of everything. But to 
to honor and to respect when a new cycle in our lives begin. You know, we have our, you know, our, our, our from one to seven sort of childhood years, and then we move into the next phase. But that's mostly ignored in our lives. So we don't always have the preparation that we need to go into the next phase of our lives, you know. And I think that's why also we see um, a lot of people not being able to take responsibility for their actions, to take responsibility for their lives, because they've, you know, it just sort of it's all one, one sort of flow without these big moments. It's also a moment for celebration, like, you know, and in the South African traditional cultures, like when when the kids go to Transkai to have that initiation, you know, it is a it is a next step in your life, and we don't do that. And I think that's why a lot of people, especially younger people, appear appear a bit lost. You know, they have no, they're almost stuck in that sort of childhood time without the opportunity to step into a role of an as an adult. Plus, on top of that. Um, I think we live in a society where it's very easy to use pharmaceuticals to to numb us. You know, um, I really feel sad when I see, for example, children who are put on medications like Ritalin or even antidepressants because we never they never learn to deal with emotions. You know, so if you feel sad, take a pull. So then you create these adults that are not connected to, to themselves to start with and then also not to anyone or anything else. Mm. Yeah, and I suppose those rites of passage give opportunities to, to teach that kind of processing. It's like having a slightly yes. different, obviously it'll be a different level for a child, but having a maybe slightly challenging experience that shows them, wow, I can actually do more than I thought I could and like I have more capacity when we, it's almost like we keep children we keep people childish in our society for as long as possible mm. and there's not really any invitation into adulthood in in any real yes. way yeah it's like get a job and go to college and like but that stuff doesn't really have what it actually means to be human kind of as a part of its exactly. education <laughs> yes i saw i once chatted to a, um what the mexican traditional people do the same and the brazilians you know from the time the children are small they take medicine you know, first they have it in the bellies of their mother, and that's how they grow up. And I spoke to someone once who said that the first thing that their children are taught um, is how to live, not to read and write, because you can always teach someone to read and write, but how to live. And this is what the medicines bring, because how to be kind, how to be compassionate, how to love. So I think a... a a ceremony or working with the medicines or a, a vision quest is a huge rite of passage too, because suddenly you are you're made aware of like many, many things that we usually don't see or we live, you know, we have lots of illusions in our minds, like this, this machine up here that keeps on churning. But a lot of our thoughts are are actually not the truth. It's just illusions that we create for ourselves. And that's the way how we then live our lives from these stories that we create. But if you work with the plants, like I said, it's almost like it's just a short circuit for you really have the opportunity to see the truth, to see the truth about, about the questions about your life, but also in, in a bigger context about, you know, about humanity, how things work, how, 
how things were, you know, many, many years ago. So it's a huge opportunity for for healing and for, for great shifts. Yeah, absolutely. I, I My first ever ayahuasca journey was, <laughs> well, I was completely clueless. I'd heard about it from, <laughs> I kind of did the things that I would now recommend people don't do um, because I just didn't know enough. And I was in England and I'd heard r- amazing things. This is now 2000 and. 10, 2009. Um, and, and I, several of my friends who I really respected and admired were saying, you know, when I'd say to them, why do you seem like you've just got, you seem so centered and like, what's the, and they're like, well, I've been working with the stuff ayahuasca. And, and so then I heard about it in the countryside of England where I was living at the time and, and went off to this, what turned out to be a Santa Daimi uh, ceremony yes. so very you know all white robes and dancing and singing and I had no idea what I was getting into and I didn't know anyone there and it was this completely throwing myself into the deep end and I had such an intense experience and it was very beautiful but it was also overwhelming because there was no I didn't have any context that was held like I just didn't know what mm. was happening and afterwards uh, we were just people were sitting around speaking at the end of the evening and kind of just you know everything's quiet but then I saw there was a, a sort of 12 year old boy there around that an English boy and and his dad had brought him and he had drunk the medicine and and I was still like what is this kid doing at this drinking these psychedelics you know like I had all these stories that I you know took me a while to unravel all that but but I spoke with him and I said you know how was that for you because I'd basically died and gone through all the most intense horrific things I could ever imagine and uh, and this boy was like yeah it was nice pretty colors and uh, and he just and I had this realization that like if we can work with some kind of medicines from a very young age, it means that we don't get this like huge pack of stuff that we then carrying that we then have to process if whenever we do the work. Um, and I don't know if that's right or not. I haven't spoken with enough people, but it seems to me that if we can enable our children to stay clear, to keep processing whatever's coming up, then they never have to get to the point that someone like me feels at where I feel like, geez, I've got so much work to do. Like, it's just, it's overwhelming. It is. It is. So by the way, I also had my first experience with Santa Daimi and I still follow the Santa Daimi today. Um, Beautiful experiences. But yes, I see that a lot in my ceremonies and the journeys that I facilitate is, um, I guess, I mean, obviously in this country, like, with our history is that the people that are older carry a like a lot you know and they've got a lot of things to shift and then you get these like 16 16 year olds 18 year olds even early 20s they just don't don't have that they are just you know and it's I think they just live in a different time right now but also some of them you know my youngest ever participant was 16 years old and it's just interesting to see that at that age how open and receptive people still are versus 45 year old for example with all these preconceived ideas and our belief systems and then it's almost harder to to understand and accept how these plants just like like trash all of that in a way you know because it's not always the truth it's like I said, it's illusions in our, in our minds that we, that we carry around with us. Mm. Mm. Beautiful. Yeah. There's, there's that sense of, I know for myself, I had to reach a point of seeing that this, what I was calling depression was an identity that I was actually getting a lot out of 
that there was this thing of like, and that took a while to realize, oh my gosh, this whole thing, I've put a lot of effort into building this identity to exactly. stay, to keep safe. And now like, and then to realize that it wasn't actually real. It's exactly what it's like. No, this is an actual thing that I have created. And that's been created through my interactions with the environment because it felt safer not to feel anything than to have to feel the pain of being in this world, all that kind of stuff. But, but at the base level, I was now the one maintaining the energy for this entity, this identity of myself that was like Nathan who has depression. And, uh, and that was hugely liberating, but it wasn't an easy thing. It was, and so, yeah, I, I hear what you're saying, how these things, these illusions become so almost addictive in themselves. I'm like, no, but I've, I've put a lot of effort into this illusion. Yes. And people also put a lot of effort into, into, you know, being judgmental or being racist or being, you know, big part is, is society, but such strong belief systems and then the plants show you something different and then it almost feels too much to comprehend to make these big shifts but it's always possible i believe oh yeah me too a hundred percent i i really think each of us is just where we are on the journey and i know for myself like my first few journeys with various medicines i was kind of like how can these shamans be looking so calm like how is this even because it's such a especially the first few i was like i can't even function as a, as it just seems completely out of control and it's really only my last journey which was now six months ago when i in the peak of the journey i felt just more centered and calm and myself than i have just about maybe ever been and I was like, oh, I could, I could literally, I could do anything right now. Like there is nothing in this state that is this, that is out of control. Um, and that was like an amazing thing that, I mean, I've only had it that one time. I don't know what the next journey is going to be like, but, but it was an amazing thing to experience. I also believe that we build a relationship with these plants. You know, it's like getting to know someone. We also get to know them. And the more we work with the plants, it is like building a beautiful relationship. And then you can have moments where you, like you've just described, where everything is just at peace and calm and centered. Um, and more and more of that usually comes until you're ready to, you know, it's also like peeling the layers of an onion. I do think it's, you know, it's, it is a lifetime of learning and working with the plants because I have, for example, drunk a lot of ayahuasca and still every time it's such a beautiful new experience of learning and understanding more and having more and more shifts. It's an onion with like an infinite <laughs> amount of amount of layers to, you know, just to, and and for me, it's also like why just so that we can, I think we can always be better people. We can always be better than we think we can be or than we are today. We can be better tomorrow. And this is what the plants really show, like how we can take bad experience, like the traumas in our lives, or even if you haven't had that much trauma, how you can just redirect all of that with the help of the healing wisdom of these plants into something that you can really use in your life going forward and how you are with people and how you are in your relationships because I see more and more that this is actually, this is what life's about, you know. If you, you know, those people that get um, all over 100 years old, I read this really great book called Ikigai where they interviewed these blue spots, people on earth, and all of them 
say the relationships, good relationships with their families and with their neighbors and actually talking to people. And if you think about today, how much of that we've lost, for example. Um, so that's certainly something I've seen with the medicines, like how it just opens, opens people's hearts, opens our hearts to just have good relationships with our fellow human beings and with nature. Very important too for us. Beautiful. Well, thank you. I mean, just so one last question for you. Um, just so for a lot of people listening to this might be at the beginning of their own healing journeys or might be wondering what to do. So what, what advice would you give for someone who is seeking healing, who is kind of entering into that journey? Well, I would definitely recomm recommend working with the plants because for me, it has certainly changed my life. Um, if I look back over the last 18 years and all the positive changes that it's just brought for my life personally, I would say that you need to, you know, all the plants are great healers. Some of them might have a, um, a better resonation with you. Like I heard the word ayahuasca and I knew that I'd, I, I needed to work with this plant. So it might be that you, you're curious, you're drawn to it. And there might be one that resonates with you. If not, I could, you know, people often get in touch with me and explain their situations. And then I can say, try this or this. Make sure that you, that you find a good person to work with. We are, we are lucky in South Africa that we have, that we have people that, that have received the training and that can facilitate good ceremonies. And yeah, I would say don't be, don't let fear hold you back. You know, that's actually the biggest advice. If you feel in any way drawn to working with the plants and creating huge shifts, don't be, you know, we're always anxious, but don't let the fear hold you back of just taking the plunge and, and going to that first ceremony. Hmm. Beautiful. Well, thank you so much. I feel like that last message was for me uh, since my last journey, even though it was the most beautiful and overall just Oh, just like incredible experience. Um, the fear that I've been experiencing thinking about another journey has been has been profound. So it's really good to have that reminder. And and thank you so much for your time today. I really appreciate appreciate you coming on and sharing your wisdom and doing the work and holding the space and and all of the things. So so yeah, thank you very much. Thank you, Nathan. It was really really nice chatting to you. Thanks again so much to Liesl Kruger for her time and her presence and her wisdom and her many years dedicated to this path of healing and growth and connection and really just being human. So yeah, make sure to, to find her online. Details about how to connect will be in the show notes, link to her website, etc. And also check us out on psychedelicsociety.co.za. And you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, etc., all of which will be linked in the show notes. Also, finally, if you have an event or anything that you would like to collaborate with us on, please do get in touch through one of the sources I just mentioned. And yeah, once again, my name is Nathan Maingard for the Psychedelic Society South Africa podcast. I wish you a blessed, blessed day wherever you are, however you are, whoever you are. And I'll see you again real soon for the next episode. Thanks and bye. Bye.